Hey, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors at Clearview Community Church. Here's today's scripture. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested Jesus by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, says Jesus. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus continues, When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept, clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. The final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Jesus replied, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Many of us have heard this story I'm about to tell you before, but I think it's an apt metaphor for today's message. There was a man trapped in his house during a flood. He began praying to God to rescue him. He had a vision in his head of God's hand reaching down from heaven and lifting him to safety. When the water started to rise in his house, his neighbor urged him to leave and offered him a ride to safety. The man yelled back, I'm waiting for God to save me. The neighbor then drove off in his pickup truck. The man continued to pray and hold on to his vision. As the water began rising in his house, he had to climb up to the roof. A boat came by with some people heading for safe ground. They yelled at a man to grab a rope they were ready to throw and take him to safety. He told them that he was waiting for God to save him. They shook their heads and moved on. The man continued to pray, believing with all his heart that he would be saved by God. The floodwaters continued to rise. A helicopter flew by and a voice came over a loudspeaker offering to lower a ladder and take him off the roof. The man waved the helicopter away, shouting back that he was waiting for God to save him. The helicopter left. The flooding water came over the roof and caught him up and swept him away. He drowned. When he reached heaven, he asked God, Why didn't you save me? I believed in you with all of my heart. Why, didn't, why did you let me drown? God replied, I sent you a truck, <laughs> I sent you a boat, and a helicopter, and you refused all of them. What else could I possibly do for you? It's a funny story, but it also packs a punch, doesn't it? And there's a simple and effective message in it. It's dangerous to reject signs from God. The scripture we read today is long and loaded. If I could summarize what I believe the author is intending, I think it would be just that. 
Don't miss the signs. So let's take our passage section by section and see what we can learn together. Firstly, the messianic miracle. This passage starts with Jesus casting out a mute demon. The demon leaves, and the crowd is astonished. Now, exorcisms weren't terribly uncommon in the ancient Middle East. So the question is, why were the people here so amazed at this particular exorcism? Here's what one commentator says. In first century Israel, the rabbis would cast out demons with a particular method. The person who was demon-possessed would be brought in before them. The rabbis would then ask the name of the demon and then cast it out using that name. Problem was, when a mute demon was presented, their method could not work because the mute demon could not speak. And so the rabbis could not cast it out. As a result, it was said that only the Messiah would have the authority to cast out a mute spirit. In Matthew's account of this event, it says the people were astonished and they asked this question, could this be the son of David? We don't have a lot of time to unpack it today, but the title son of David was code for Messiah, the promised deliverer of God's people. Matthew also records that part of who was present in this event were the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Their response to Jesus and his miracle is pretty obtuse. They basically call Jesus evil. The name Beelzebul was ancient Jewish slang for an evildoer or demonic activity. So it seems that this wasn't a simple misunderstanding on the Pharisees' part. They knew that only the Messiah could perform this kind of miracle, and they still intentionally rejected Jesus and also misled the people. No wonder Jesus had a particular beef with these guys. Now, what was Jesus planning to accomplish with this miracle to begin with? Luke says that after Jesus performed this incredible miracle, one only the Messiah could do, the people asked for another sign. They sound like the guy in the story I shared earlier. Like, hello, God just sent you a sign, a clear one. Like the guy in the story, the people's visions or expectations of the Messiah were the very obstacles that blinded them to the Messiah that was in front of them. The casting out of a demon was the sign, and the people missed it. Or worse, some saw the sign and chose to reject it. Here's the question. What was this sign meant to accomplish for Jesus? Remember, Jesus is on his final ascent to Jerusalem, the place where he will have the final showdown with the religious leaders, with evil and sin on the cross. If this particular exorcism was meant to be a sign, then it was a sign pointing to what Christ's work in Jerusalem would be like. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, the point of Jesus' exorcisms, after all, was not simply to heal as many individuals as possible. If that were his aim, he wasn't very successful when seen in the longer term. Rather, he was aiming to enact God's kingdom for Israel and the world. The inauguration of God's kingdom involved, as Jesus said in Luke 4, the proclamation of good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free. The idea that people are oppressed implies that there is an oppressor, and there is. Our mutual enemy, the Satan, is running rampant in the world. Beelzebel seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus has come to inaugurate a kingdom where there is life and life to the full, which includes freedom from the oppressor. 
The Bible says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. He is the oppressor. The exorcism of the mute demon was the signpost that pointed to what was coming next, which was Jesus' confrontation with sin, death, and the devil at Easter. One commentary says, The kingdom is not just beautiful words, it is the overthrow of evil. And amen to that. This helps to clarify the stories Jesus used to explain his miracle. You see, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus is stronger. That's the message Jesus is telling the people and the religious leaders. First off, he points out that their logic is flawed. How can Satan cast out Satan and expect to run a successful operation? Doesn't make sense. So Jesus moves on to the story of the strong man in the house. We can interpret it this way. The devil is the strong man in the house. He has made his rounds in the world and throughout history, plundering souls, taking captive what he can. But Jesus is the stronger man. And he has come to vacate the plunderer. Jesus' work on the cross would be that initial blow that would forever change the world and the effect the devil has on it. The power that enabled Jesus to cast out the demons in our story is the power that enables him to cast out evil and sin in the world. And the cross was the decisive wound dealt to the enemy. One day, the Bible says that wound will subdue the devil for good. The letter Paul writes to the Roman church, ends with this inspiring promise. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. When we talk about evil, we're not talking just about spiritual, immaterial entities, the devil and demons. We're also talking about how evil has played out in the world through injustices like racism, poverty, violence. It's these evils that Easter has inflicted a wound to as well. John Wesley was a great Christian evangelist of the 1700s and was also said to be one of the foremost social reformers of his century. Wesley harshly criticized the slave trade, calling it the execrable villainy, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature, in a letter to William Wilberforce. In a small book addressing the issue, Wesley finished with this prayer, O thou God of love, have compassion upon these outcasts of men. Arise and help these who have no helper. Thou Savior of all, make them free, that they may be free indeed. As an answer to prayer, William Wilberforce took the cause of the African slave, working tirelessly for 40 years to abolish the slave trade and slavery. 26 years after the abolition of the slave trade, slavery itself was abolished in the United Kingdom in 1833, just days before Wilberforce died. The temptation today is to look around the world and ask, Where is the kingdom of God today? There's still so much evil. It's so rampant in our world. How can God's kingdom be already here and evil be just as prevalent? N.T. Wright makes a great point when he said, We in the modern West are very used to looking around the world and buying the rhetoric of the secular enlightenment, which says that actually Christianity has basically failed the world. It's just the same as it always was. But when you look at the world and the scheme of history, you can see dramatic shifts in public perceptions. We at the moment are faced with this horrible thing of the war in the Ukraine. But the fact that most people in the modern Western world and around the rest of the world look at it and say, this is inhumane, this should not be allowed, what can we do to stop it? Shows that the consciousness of the world has actually radically changed. 
in the first century, people would not bat an eye at a war like the one in Ukraine. They would just say, well, that's just what tyranny does. Power trumps weak. There's nothing you can do about it. That's just the way it is. The fact is, it was the same with the apartheid, that many people in days gone by said, that's just how people choose to be. But the world as a whole got together and said, this is not the way we should treat human beings. So then, where did that instinct for what we call human rights come from? Where did it come from? The reality is that the Christian worldview, the one of the Bible of dignity for humanity, for the poor, for the sick and the imprisoned, and the oppressed, it has soaked into the consciousness of the world. And it is an extraordinary historical phenomenon that we should not downplay. During the time of Luke's writings, there was war and tension and the temple's destruction. The emperor, Nero, was burning Christians to light his gardens. But by 300 AD, the church of Jesus had permeated the entire nation. By the way, have you ever noticed that nobody worships Zeus today? The kingdom of God is here and it's here to stay. It's been working and will continue to work in the world in the lives of ordinary people who have been transformed by it and who are, in turn, transforming the world in Jesus' name. Jesus has come to deal with evil forces and its effects in the world, and he's using ordinary people like you and me. Remember, the Satan, the God of peace, will crush is under your feet. So what about the strange story about an evil spirit that returns to the place it left? It's clearly an intended warning, but it can't be a warning about the likely effect of exorcisms. If that was the case, it'd be better to skip exorcisms altogether. Why do an exorcism if the person would be worse later on? Instead, this story is most likely meant to mean what it means in Matthew's account. Matthew applies the story to Israel as a nation and not to an individual person. Israel failed to see and accept the signs, and it resulted in its destruction, leaving only the Western Wall, which remains as a holy site today. In 70 AD, Rome reconquered Jerusalem after an attempted revolt, initiating the Roman-Jewish War. The temple, as Jesus predicted, was demolished as well, for the second time. At different points in the Gospels, Jesus seems to imply that it was their rejection of him, of the sign, that would lead to that destruction. Jesus accused the religious leaders and essentially Israel as a whole of this, of cleaning the house, but then leaving it empty. When the opportunity came to fill the house with the very presence of God, they rejected the invitation. They rejected Jesus. The stronger man wasn't there to bind up the oppressor, and an empty house invited destruction instead. N.T. Wright says it this way, Unless the living presence of God came to dwell in her midst, Israel would remain vulnerable to the return of the demons. Jesus stood there among his people, embodying as we shall see the return of God to Israel. Unless they turned from accusation to acceptance, the demons that had led them to ruin in former days would come back in full force. And those demons did. In our passage today, there's both a warning and a blessing. Jesus gives the people, and to us today, both a warning and an invitation. The warning is this. Don't miss the sign. Jesus is the sign. I hear this question from time to time and from different people. Why doesn't God just come and rescue us? Sound familiar? The Lord will say, I sent you my son. That's the warning. The invitation is for blessing. Those who see the signs, or in other words, hear God's word and obey, 
will be blessed. They will find life and life to the full and life with God. So what are we to take with us as we go today? Well, the main lesson is clear. Don't miss the sign. As we said before, the sign is Jesus himself. One of the accusations against the Pharisees and religious leaders was that that what they actually had was bad religion. They had a clean house, but God was not in it. And that's what bad religion is like. It's a clean house, but an empty one. No religion or bad religion. Without Christ, it's empty. According to Jesus, bad religion looks like a Pharisee. It's thinking that obeying God's law is the end goal instead of the means to the end goal. It's thinking that getting to heaven is the only goal instead of getting God himself. It's wanting God's stuff, but not God. That's bad religion. This challenges why we're here in the first place. Why do you and I follow Jesus? Why do we follow Jesus? Do we want God because of his stuff or do we want him for him? Are we here because we think this will make us happy or give us the good life or because of who God is? To note, Jesus does give us those things. But the temptation to worship the gifts instead of the giver remains for all of us a challenge. I like what the great Christian philosopher and thinker C.S. Lewis said. He said, I don't go into religion to make me happy. I knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel comfortable, I would not recommend Christianity. Tim Keller said, religion for a lot of Christians is just a way to get God to give them the things they really want, not God himself. Gospel believing Christians obey God just to get God, just to resemble him and love him and know him and delight in him. You see, the evidence that we have a religion that isn't empty is, as Jesus said, that we hear his word and obey. Obey even when we don't feel like it. Obey when we don't understand. Obey even when we might even disagree. Obey in all things and with our whole lives. Obey because of who God is, that Jesus is Lord and Christ is enough. There is nothing more to add. Have you missed the sign? For some of you, missing the sign might look like missing Jesus for yourself. God has sent someone to rescue you and it's Jesus. The good news is that God is inviting you to a real relationship with him. The Bible God's word declares in Romans 10, 9 to 10, that if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Maybe you're here today and you feel like you've missed the sign of salvation. Today's your day. Do as we just read, declare with your mouth, and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you will be saved. Trust God with your life for the forgiveness of sins and resolve to follow him with your whole life. Or maybe you're concerned that you may have some empty religion, that there are some rooms in your house that you haven't cleaned up yet, that you haven't given up everything to the Lord. Rooms of maybe addiction or unhealthy attachments, idols, or maybe of apathy or abdication in a world of great need. You see the sign and you want to respond appropriately. Well, let's give those rooms to God together. We all need help. I need help. I have often prayed this simple prayer, Lord, help me. <laughs> God answers that prayer. As we read a few weeks ago, God longs to give the Holy Spirit to fill us for those who ask. So let's pray that God will help us open the door to him in every room in this house and that we would have not only a clean house, but a full one 
one with God's very presence. Let's pray together. Father, we give you our hearts and our lives. We give you not part of our house, we give you our whole house, every single room. There are some locked doors in all of our lives that we have a hard time giving up to you. Lord, help us. Help us to give you those as well, to clean the house, but then to fill it with you, Jesus. This is our aim, Lord, to be like you, to be with you, and to do as you've called us to do. We love you, Lord, and we trust you. For those who wish to give their lives over to you or to rededicate their lives to you, we pray this simple prayer. Holy Spirit, we trust you. We say thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins and for giving us new life. Come fill us now with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me read this benediction to you today. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for watching. God bless you, friends.